And welcome back to The Fear of God, a podcast discussing that strange but surprisingly compelling intersection between the Christian faith and the horror genre. With you, as always, is myself, co-host Nathan Rouse. You know, typically um, with me is dear friend and compatriot and co-host Reed Lackey, but... I mean, he earlier, we were talking earlier and he got a call from somebody named Black Phillip and I, I haven't heard from him in a while. So I don't know. I mean, that's a strange name for someone. He's never read. Here you are. You're back. And I am with uh, thee. Oh no. What has happened <laughs> to you? Just kidding. Um, welcome my friend to your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, Thank you, my friend. Welcome to you as well. Same. Yeah. Um, today we're going to be discussing the frighteningly frightening and scary and very scary movie. If I haven't mentioned, it's very, it's a very scary movie, um, called The Witch, subtitled A New England Folktale. Um, mm. before we get there, Reed, before, you know, the shivers go up the spine, how you doing? Any, any new, uh, doing well. We've, we haven't done this in a couple of weeks, but any, any movies or anything striking your radar that's, that's been of particular interest or note lately? No, uh, sadly, uh, sadly not. My, my, uh, home and, and family and work life has been, has been very, very busy. So I actually have not been able to watch much that wasn't directly related to the podcast, although, uh, and podcast listeners are not going to care at all about this, particularly in an episode about the witch, but, uh, something that, that I did sort of engage with, uh, that listeners are going to laugh at. Have you ever seen, uh, the barbershop movies? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I saw the first one. Um, and, and found it, and found it entertaining enough. You know, it, it's funny. I have a special place in my heart for those movies. Uh, I had just recently got the third one and, and basically the reason that I wanted to catch up with them, I had seen. Wow. Them. Yeah. You are a fan. <laughs> well, the, the, the first one, uh, I watched like a really long time ago and, and only re-engaged with because the third one came out and was very highly 
praised, very highly reviewed. And uh, so just, you know, because you asked, we don't have to spend a ton of time on it, but I like those movies. They're fun. They're good. And they have a good uh, finger on the pulse of, of the importance of community, which, of course, I respond to very strongly. So, so yeah, I, uh, I enjoy those films. That's about the only thing that wasn't directly related to the podcast that I've watched uh, in, in recent weeks. Well, indeed, and indeed, Reed, that is a... Um uh, I'm hesitant to use the word surprising because you, you are a man of many tastes. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so I, I won't necessarily call that surprising. It is unexpected, but, you know, I, 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 I can get down with the barbershop. Um, I did watch this little date a little bit of when we're recording this. Um, the only other thing that I've seen non podcast wise, hey, you know what? I did watch, we referenced this in Gremlins. I did rewatch Children of Men and oh, good. it is not in fact rooted to any specific time frame. So we can rest easy oh. knowing that information. Um, gotcha. I did also go see Rogue One in the theater and, um, I have yet to. So be careful. Yeah. Yeah. yeah careful yeah. you. No, I'm just kidding. And listeners are going to hear this in mid January and be like, right. he still hasn't seen Rogue One. I will likely have seen Rogue One by the time you hear this. I just haven't by the time we've recorded this. I can't remember. Are you, are you traditionally like a fan? I mean, I know you've got a deep love for star trek are you are you traditionally right. just kind of a more casual fan of star wars or do you have a deep sort of affection for that too i would call myself a slightly above casual star wars fan i am not deeply entrenched in and i don't watch the movies over and over and over again like i do with the star trek universe i have seen them all i enjoy most of them particularly you know the the original trilogy i have a tremendous amount of affection for both um, empire strikes back and a new hope uh, made my recently uploaded top 250 favorite films list. But yeah, I, um, I do, I do enjoy them a lot, but I am not a rabid Star Wars fan. I enjoy it a lot. And, uh, it just, uh, it, I do not, compared to people who significantly enjoy it. Yeah, I would be very far down that that list or that. Well, um, uh, Rogue One is is a lot of fun. Uh, the the latter half of the movie is particularly strong. Um, sometimes it mm. feels the opposite with some of these tentpole features that uh, the opening can be really strong and the back part not stick the landing. I feel like they've sort of inverted that a little bit. Gotcha. Regardless, I'll spare you the spoilers of. Um, everyone in the galaxy dying or anything like that. Wow. See, there you uh, go. Or, or aliens, you know, showing up, which actually could work in Star Wars world. Well, that's Star Wars. Aliens are going to show up somewhere. <laughs> like, everybody's basically an alien. There's no Earth. But in that, I was going to say, in that, in that, in that universe, are there aliens? You know, it's just like yeah. everybody is a stranger. <laughs> um, we can't, we can't prolong this any longer. Um, you know, we nope. need to, uh, leave the refuge of our, of our barbershop. No, well, yeah, sure. Of our barbershop that's located in a little, little village, a tiny township <laughs> in New England. We need, to leave, we need to depart it and go to the edge of the forest and just sort of dive into this movie. Um, so, oh man, I've seen this twice now. I finally back about six months ago took the plunge. My, kind of 19 year old, I think he is a uh, nephew was in town is into this kind of stuff. And, and we watched it and both scared to death of it. And, but, but it's affecting you, like you can't come away with the witch, not at least having some sort of effect on you uh, for good or bad. And, you know, rewatched it. I think I texted you and maybe I should post it on the fear of God Facebook page, but um, I watched it 
recently with my sister and her husband. And that signature scene that happens about five minutes in, seven minutes in, uh, I look over and they're both kind of cowering behind their respective jackets and blankets. Um, <laughs> rightfully so. That's dreadful and terrifying. Uh, how, how many times yeah, have you seen The Witch now? Uh, watching for this podcast was my third, okay. which given the fact that it came out this year, yes, I've seen the same movie three times in a given year. But, but yeah, it's my third time. I had a, I had the opportunity to have, uh, two conversations about it prior to this one. Uh, some of that information, if, if listeners heard me on there, uh, is going to be repeated. Um, which I didn't, you know what? Forgive me for this brief pause. I reluctantly did not give a shout out to the Geek Orthodox podcast last week during our Let Me In conversation. I uh, want to apologize to them for that and shout out to them for that because they had me on to talk about that movie as well. I just wanted to briefly aside there. Um, but I had the opportunity to talk about The Witch on More Than One Lesson with Tyler last October. Um, and then also in October was invited to Real World Theology to have a conversation about The Witch. Some of the thoughts are going to carry over, but this film is so rich in substance and theme that it's entirely possible that we'll say all new things because there is a lot going on in this movie. And I feel that way every time I rewatch it, that there's there's something else to focus in on. There's something else to gleam from it. It's a, a really impressive film. And, and it's one, it's interesting that you say, you know, it's impossible to walk away unaffected because, you know, to hear IMDB comments, which I try to give them as little credibility as possible, but a lot of users didn't like this film. A lot of users, um, feel like this film is boring. I don't think they really understand what the film is, is scratching at or trying to accomplish. Uh, I find the film to be terrifying and powerful and, I find the film to be really, really effective and really strong. I have a tremendous amount of respect for it. More respect every single time I watch it. So it always surprises me. <laughs> you just, you just made me think of Beetlejuice and it keeps getting funnier every single time I see it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's fantastic. But it's, it's true that this film just sort of grows in my esteem every time uh, it, it, I encounter it. And so I always, uh, just find it a bit puzzling. Yes, it is slow paced. It's deliberately paced. I don't find, I don't ever find it boring. I didn't find it boring my first viewing. I will acknowledge that because the language is so old, it would be difficult, you know, perhaps without subtitles or without having seen the film already to understand fully what's being said or what's going on in a given moment. I think that's to the film's credit because sure. the film, unlike most films that I've seen, I am never taken out of this movie for a single frame. There's not a, there's not a moment where I don't feel like I'm there with these people in the early 1600s. And that, that is a profound achievement in my book, particularly with modern sensibilities, with modern effects. Um, this is the type of film that just really is a, uh, is, is a real, I'm going to use this word deliberately. I think it's a real treasure in that it, uh, it, it is very specific. And it's very focused, and I think, uh, as a result, very rewarding. Yes, I would, I would echo much of what you just said. Let's, let's do, um, not, not to dismiss any of our content, but to get to some meat. Let's, let's be a little, um, speed round with likes, dislikes, and scary scenes. Just because sure, I, f- sure. I feel like there's some stuff to talk about that isn't even necessarily associated with theme, although they may entwine, and, and it's hard to address that without getting through some of this, uh, earlier stuff. So, um, sure, pure, sure. Uh, for me, uh, I've got two easy ones, one like, one dislike. Uh, the like is just the big word verisimilitude. Like the, the mm. period recreation of this film is at least in aesthetic. Like I'm no historian. 
That should be our, <laughs> that's our tagline for this year. I'm no historian. Um, <laughs> you know, um, uh, it's okay. I've made bigger jumps than this. <laughs> so I'm no historian. So I can't necessarily speak to every facet of the historicity and the recreation, all that sort of stuff. But purely for the effect of the film, they nail the mood, the tone, the atmosphere that yes. sense that's the language as you described that sense in which we are watching something from another time. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And so I, I feel like it is hard for me to not just, and like you said, like if you wanted to catch every turn of phrase in this movie, it'd be hard to do without subtitles. But part of that right. is what sweeps you up in the effect as well. Um, yeah, is yeah, exactly. These are not, I mean, you know, the, the mother and the father are recognizable in that they show up here and there um, in character parts, but largely this is a pretty unknown cast to its credit. I mean, yeah. the, you talk yeah. about pulling you out of a movie. Like if Tom Cruise shows up in the witch, we're like, Oh, well, he's going to, he's going <laughs> to be okay. Um, yeah. and, you know, it's <laughs> exactly. just a totally different experience. So that was a big one for me. Any likes specifically that you want to address? Um, I, I'll mention two and they're, they're performance based. I don't want to do it. Dis- I like all of the performances in this film. But the two likes, for the sake of some brevity, are just the full-bodied nature of William's character. The father could have easily been a stereotype, a caricature, a easily written-off footnote in terms of, oh, he's the religious zealot who causes problems for everybody. But they really, the film really works hard to make him a full, a full-bodied and believable character. Some of that is in uh, the actor's performance. He's played by uh, Ralph Ineson. But I think that just in general, that uh, that performance is really strong. And holy cow, Caleb! Caleb, the 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 older boy, yeah, he's amazing. He is outstanding in in his performance. I don't even know where this kid came from. Like he he's just so impressive. I kind of don't want to know uh, how they got his death scene performance out of him. Like, Whew, yeah, that's that's. Most- I haven't heard any rumors or anything of like bad happenings on the set. Everybody seemed to sure, imply no, that it was a very yeah. warm set, but man, it is terrifying. And you know what's impressive about the scene? I said this in the more than one lesson conversation. What's impressive to me about that scene is that he's the one driving it. He's not feeding off of everybody. Sure. Oh yeah, he's the all one. Him. He's the one propelling that scene, and he's such a young actor and already so capable. He's somebody. Harvey Scrimshaw is his name, and he's somebody. I think we should watch because he's got the potential to really do some incredible things in his career, depending on the choices he makes after this. But I think he's really impressive. William's really impressive. And just, I already mentioned the overall tone and authenticity of the film as you spoke to as well is something that really struck me as a big, like I actually have no dislikes. I, I officially three viewings in there's nothing about this film. I don't like. Well, it's funny. Uh, the only dislike I had suddenly you saying that made me want to tag something onto it. Uh, all I have written down is Jonas and mercy are the worst, you know, the, the <laughs> twins. and we'll get into this. I do have a yeah. slight dislike and that's a, a, a bit of plotting confusion on my part as a viewer. Um, and actually I did a little research. It's not just my part, um, of exactly what happens to Jonas and Mercy at the end of the movie, but we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll get there. I do want, I, I strangely feel compelled in a way we don't usually with these podcasts to say to, to listeners, this is one of few movies I would understand if folks kind of wanted to steer clear of, not because I don't yeah. think it's valuable, but it is fraught and it is heavy and it, it will, 
in, in the way we talked about with let me in, you know, it kind of forces you to self assess a little bit. This movie really, you, you could come away troubled and, and, and I, I, you know, far be it for us to encourage right. f- people feeling troubled, but I do want to, in, in ways we rarely do say, if you just want to listen to this podcast and hear us talk about it, I, I sort of would understand that because it's it's a pretty freaking heavy movie. It really is. Well, and it's worth noting since you mentioned that uh, that there was some controversy uh, in the, in in Christian circles around the around the witch because early in its marketing, it was endorsed by the Satanic Temple, and uh, something that I think it's worth noting that the Satanic Temple has also endorsed. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, they've endorsed Fantasia, they've endorsed Night of the Hunter, which is one of my very favorite films. And so it, it was something where I don't think that just an endorsement by that organization uh, is automatically means that Christians can't find some substance in here. And also when we get into theme, it's something that I find a little puzzling given kind of the reason that they seem to have endorsed it. But we'll save that for later. But I do understand and echo and agree this is the kind of film that I would understand if people were like, I don't really want to see this movie. I just want to sort of know about it or that's fine. I do think that it's a film that is worth seeing if you sure, have sure. the the sort of stamina, the the constitution, if you will, to be able to handle the content and what this film is talking about. We talked last week about cautionary tales, and this is firmly for me in that category, that this is a a cautionary tale through and through. It is bleak as the day is long and the night is sharp. It is a bleak, bleak film in structure, in tone, in narrative, bleak all the way through. And uh, and so, yeah, I definitely agree. It's something that I would understand if people were like, uh, maybe I skip that one. <laughs> well, in maybe fact, I don't it's that. funny you talk about its bleakness. Um, watching it with my sibling and her husband, uh, uh, Kate and Richard, shout out, um, at about a third of the way through, uh, this is after the baby is lost. This is after a couple of other incidents have occurred. My sister said, oh, I just, this, it's so hard for them. And I was like, you, uh. you're not even, we're not even there yet. I mean, like just this, like, <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, s- speaking of, uh, of, you know, some scary things, let's dive into some of that. I do think, I think that seven minutes in the fate of Samuel, is almost, I, I texted you the first time I saw this. That is a moment where if you have tempted to watch this movie, you would probably turn it off. And I wouldn't blame yeah, you. Yeah. Um, I right, do right. think the only thing for me personally that sort of saves it is as this movie is throughout, it is so artful. It is so, right, I hesitate. Right. This, I understand my use of this word in context here. It's so classy. Um, it is, oh, it is yeah, yeah. artfully rendered, um, the death of this baby, um, which <laughs> just saying that sentence out loud sounds horrific and is horrific, but the way it happens, I would understand if someone turned this movie off at that point, <laughs> wouldn't you? Sure. Agree? Sure. Oh, oh no, completely. Uh, yeah, I've mentioned before on the podcast that I'm very protective of what my wife sees. You know, she tries to engage with as much, it, it just mostly for to show some support for the show and everything. She'll try to engage with as much of this as possible and support for me. Uh, but this is one that I didn't even question. I was like, you can't, you can't watch this film. Seven minutes in, you'll be like, uh, uh-uh, uh, night. Like we can't. <laughs> like this is not, this is not going to continue. And again, like you said, you know, if if they had shown anything else, I mean, they show enough. But if they had shown anything else about what happens to poor Samuel, I, I think I'd have been out. I think I'd have been right, like, this right. can't. It, it's just one of those things where I I feel like, uh, you know, t- Tyler on the More Than One Lesson show said, 
Robert, uh, Robert Eggers is not only a savvy filmmaker, but he's a sensitive one. Yeah, that's a good word. And I think he yeah. already has a good instinct. Yeah, uh, for for exactly how how much his his audience is going to be able to tolerate before they're they're going to bow out on him. Because because uh, in that scene, Reed, you you have this feeling in you like I am readying to turn this off. Yeah. You know, and then you're Got like the remote in my hand. Then you're like, well. Okay. You know, like, uh, yeah, yeah. It's a strange feeling. I totally so sensi- agree. Sensitive is a good word. I like that. That's a scary moment for me, obviously, is, uh, is Samuel's death. Another scary moment for me is, uh, is mom's dream in the near uh, the end of the uh, movie. Uh, and, and that freaking mom in general. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. Mom's pretty freaky. Mom is, is really unsettling and unnerving. She's kind of lost it before the movie starts. <laughs> but, but, you know, also one thing that I'll say about the film more so than like scary moments is I feel like the entire film is just fraught with tension. Oh, yeah. I'm never ease. Nope. In, in this film. There's never a relenting moment. Like there's one. Like 30 second scene where she and Caleb are talking about the glass back in England. And that's like maybe everything's yeah. okay in yeah. those 30 seconds. And, and other than that, the whole movie is like, Oh my God, something's about to happen. Oh my, Oh my Lord. No, 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 well, no. Cause Don't in, a, around. in a fascinating way, many scary movies, I think, and this is definitely a generalization. I understand that, but you know, there are external things happening to a group of characters or a character and those external things may persist until this character's passing in some possibly violent way. What's fascinating about the witch is the external, f- external elements are directly responsible for internal strife. Like, right. Like right. you, and that's to your point about never feeling at ease, like, because everything that happens outside of them affects what happens in their four walls. Exactly. And, and just, com- you know, the, the, it's like you put a pot, a pot of water on the stove and just set it to hot. Right. The longer it sits there, the more it's going to start boiling until it's just completely over. Two other, you mentioned Caleb's death, which I, my note said would be beautiful if it wasn't so horrifying. Um, right. And then right. two just sort of drive by scary moments is the witch milking the goat and the mom nursing the crow. Those were awful. Whoa. Just listeners, just take those statements in. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> and that's what you're in for with this movie. Right, right. So let's talk about this movie. So. Listeners won't know this, but Reed, you and I had like a, a healthy hour long back and forth via text the other day after I'd seen it a second time, just trying to sort through. And I sang, I made up a new song about Black Phillip, who's really a, <laughs> uh, double, has a, has a double life as a pirate on the high seas and is sort of like a, a modern day chicken. So, uh, some um, tune of Gilligan's which, Island, lest we forget. <laughs> <laughs> Chicken boo. Black Phillip. Um, <laughs> he wears the disguise to look like human guys, but he's not a man. He's a chicken boo. Oh, my God. Um, welcome to 2017, everybody. <laughs> um, so, so there's a lot happening in this movie. So, so mine and read mine and your conversation via text was all about what did or didn't happen to Jonas and Mercy right, and, right. and how, com- how comfortable we are with or without the ambiguity. You're very comfortable with it. It bothered me, not on a spiritual level, on a like, well, I feel like the movie answers a lot of different things and somehow doesn't directly answer that one. But we, we can get into that if we want to. But mainly, I'm I'm interested in a conversation about the reality slash unreality happening on film. And, yeah. and I've been a little, I got a little disheartened. I didn't text you about this as a follow-up because 
uh, I figured we'd get into it. So I did some digging after our big conversation because I'm like, certainly we are not the only ones having this conversation. Sure. So I did some Googling. But I need to preface that by saying after my first viewing and being deeply unsettled by the movie, wherein I took pretty much everything on screen as literally happening, you made the comment uh, that gave me hope <laughs> for my for my own spiritual sanity and well-being that perhaps, to, to caveat my preface, the movie is about these this family being utterly tormented to the point of insanity and death by a witch. Right. Um, and you learn that at the end of the movie, the, a goat that's been present with them the whole movie called Black Phillip, named Black Phillip, may or may not be the actual devil. Yeah. And, but the scene that immediately precedes the revel, this revelation is Thomason, the, the girl who is our point of view character, having endured and witnessed and in a certain way perpetrated the, the, the death of her entire family. Um, she falls asleep. Yeah. And so you made the point after my first viewing, like, well, is it possible she's asleep for that final scene with Black Phillip? And that gave me so much hope. <laughs> um, like, please let that be true because this movie is just messing me up because, because it is fascinating. Again, we're backdooring some themes here, but there is nothing literally on screen during Caleb's death, which is this beautiful, he, the, the, the script has him enraptured in the presence of Jesus. And it's this actual really lovely, like I said, beautiful, if not horrifying scene of his passing. But there's physically nothing on screen with him. Whereas at the end, she is present with this actual physical entity that is the human form of Black Philip Revealed. Right, right. So, so that's a long preface for opening up this conversation of what is and isn't happening on screen. And so I'm curious from you, Reed, like, so this digging I did and, and what lended, what made me sort of happy about that interpretation is, I don't love stories where not just the bad guys win, but the friggin', I mean, if you want to use the word win, the devil wins, oh, oh, you know, yeah, and, and yeah. sort of claims, claims this victim. So there's a couple of questions here. One is the witch of the title Thomason, or is it this other physical entity in the forest tormenting mm -hmm. them? So that's one okay. question. Question two is if, if we take the final scene as literal, then to use witch language, there's a coven of witches. There's a group. Right. So are we meant to think there's only been one witch tormenting the whole time or are there more than one? Mm. But the, but what will be revelatory to our conversation about the fate of Jonas and Mercy and what dispels what I want to be the case that this is a dream state at the end. Again, this is all interpretive and I understand that, but many people are speculating that the witch that has been present throughout the movie Yes, does whisk them away in the night, but that they are fodder for the fire in the forest that the witches are dancing. Around. Oh my yeah. good lord, are you serious? That's horrifying. Yeah, that is sort of the common going theory that is present, which again, if is true, makes this a literal encounter at the end and not a dream state. You know what I mean? And all the more frightening because of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, right, right. So. Uh, so again, I know, I know that's not directly addressing themes. It is just trying to gain some clarity, figure out what do we actually think is happening in this movie? Is it okay? I, I think it's totally okay with ambiguity. Right, right. I just don't want there to be ambiguity where there might not be intended to be ambiguity. Sure, sure. Well, I will say this, like, uh, and, and, and this is going to sound more dismissive than I intended to. Like for me, I find it interesting and enjoy to a degree the fact that we don't quite know the fate of Jonas and Mercy. We, we talked at length about that. 
I will say though that like, and, and this is, this would be true for almost every scene of this film. Somebody comes to me and they say, Hey, I think this is what's happening. Honestly, in most cases, depending on the theories, I would probably say, you know what? You could read it that way. You could look at it that way uh, because this right, film is right, so right. open to different interpretations. And I think that's to the film's credit because I think it rewards reviewing. It rewards discussion. It rewards being able to sort of examine it on a deeper level. And so if somebody comes to me and is like, yeah, uh, like the moment you said that, like Jonas and Mercy are, are in the fire at the end, you know, I got chills all over again. And I'm like, good Lord, that is that is horrific and awful and and entirely possible. And makes yeah. perfect sense. <laughs> it makes perfect right, sense and right. is entirely possible. To to directly answer your questions, I think I would say that while uh, – so if somebody were to say, hey, Thomason is, is the witch of the title, what I would want to clarify, I do not feel – I do not agree with a reading of the film that she was – which I have heard – that she was a witch the whole time. Correct. I would agree uh, yeah. with that. I think yeah. that she. I would agree with your yeah. disagreement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got it. That like uh, she, I think, doesn't become one until the end. Although you could make a case that the film is about her, and that at the end she ends sure. as a witch. That's clear. So, right. Uh, right. so that is, um, you know, that's that's one thing. So, or you could say that it was referring to, you know, the threat that that came into this family, or the the looming threat of of witchcraft. I would also say in regard to are there more than one tormenting them, it's the first, you know, this moment is the first moment that I'm thinking about it, but I'm actually, I'm actually not bothered by that. I actually think it's, uh, it, it's possible to say like, hey, they have three different uh, sort of witch encounters, you know, the first being who takes Samuel, the second being uh, who bewitches Caleb, and the third being who confronts Jonas and Mercy in the barn. Um, if those were all three different witches, like, like that, that's fine because the film shows us that there's a coven of witches in the end. So I think it's a, right. it's a valid reading. Well, and I, th I, I do think to me, probably the most valid reading of those two things, I'm comfortable, like you said, with the duality of the title. Like, is the witch referring to an external threat? Yes. Is the witch possibly referring to Thomason by movies in? Sure. I, the, I don't think personally there's a ton of support for there being multiple witches tormenting mm. them. It's only, it's only if we take the ending as literal that it would sort of beg that question. Gotcha. Like, oh, yeah. well, it does kind of make sense that there's many of them around this fire at the end. Um, does that then mean we might not have just been witnessing one? Regardless, I think that's more, uh, uh, the witch thing feels like an interpretive choice. The multiple witches things feels like a speculative choice that doesn't have a whole lot of right, fruit. Right, right. But to, to clue listeners in, I mean, what spawned mine and yours text back and forth was I was struggling with the lack of clarity about Jonas and Mercy simply because I feel like the movie, the script is very intentional about, it's not, in, it's not intentional about, um, not leaving some mystery in. It does feel intentional about clarity of, a person being living or dead right, based right. on certain things that happen in the plot of the film. So anyway, I, I felt like that was a worthwhile conversation to have just to sort of flesh out. Okay. Now we can sort of engage some thematic stuff that we've got a root in. You know, you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, it, it, it certainly does. And, and I'll sort of piggyback on that and run with it because what the, the main thing, uh, part of me when I was preparing for this episode was genuinely, you know, this is the first time that you and I are talking about this in a substantive way, but it, but it is. The third time that I've that I've had the opportunity to discuss this film in in this type of format, and I wanted to hone in on something a little different or that I hadn't talked about yet. And one of the things that I think is all through this film, both 
in the narrative, in the characters, and in the audience that's viewing it is the conflict between certainty and uncertainty. That, in a sense, we are very confident of certain things, certain uh, elements in our life, uh, things that we feel we can control, things that we feel we have a handle on, things that we can take as assurance. I will wake up tomorrow, the sun will rise. It might be a foggy or a cloudy day, but the, the, the sun will come up. It's, it's going to happen. And then all the other elements in our life that are uncertain. Uh, when conflict comes into our life, am I going to be okay? When trouble imperils us, like, am I going to make it through this? And I think this film is really playing in almost every frame. We could probably do a scene-by-scene commentary in this film uh, if we really wanted to. But I think almost everything is is playing on this notion of certainty versus uncertainty. Like, look at the character of William. When we first meet him, he is so confident and so certain of his beliefs and his theology that the Puritans are kicking him out of the plantation. Right. Like, right, right, th- right. This- and it's not because he's sinned and gotten it wrong you know what i mean like it's not like ostracism due to negative behavior it's like you puritans are wrong we gotta go it's like (laughs) you aren't oh my gosh it's like uh it's like somebody looking at jerry falwell and being like you're a little liberal like (laughs) i mean it's it's, it's, you know i say that with no judgment i just like that's the level of extreme it's like these puritans are kicking him out for his religious zealotry so that's something that he's what does he say when he leaves he looks at them in pride and says, how sadly hath the Lord judged you. And and then he leaves. But then what begins to happen to his family? He's so certain and confident that he kisses the ground when he sees where they're going to, you know, see the plantation. And then as the film progresses, certainty becomes less and less a commodity that this family can depend on. Not only certainty of are we going to be okay, but what is really happening? What's really taking place? Who can we trust? What can we trust? Can we trust even our own senses in this thing? And it all starts with the death of Samuel, because then when William and Caleb are out in the woods talking about it, what does William say to Caleb? He says, I I can't tell you where Samuel is. I can't tell you where we're going to go. Who we're right. gonna be. I can, I right. can tell you, you know, this sort of hope of truth or whatever, but, but we really don't know. And so for a man who was so stubborn in his faith and theology that he got kicked out of a Puritan plantation, then to have this moment of, I'm not even sure where my son is who has died. Well, and you know, what's so fascinating about this movie, uh, and I don't know anything about the screenwriter or the director. But this movie is a very real litmus test of your own personal theology. Yeah. Like, yeah, I agree. You know, like, like I can watch this movie and feel like I do think this movie is an indictment of a certain brand of Christian living and, and, and Christian interpretation. And I can feel very comfortable with that indictment because uh, it sounds harsher than I mean it, but I, cause I would sort of indict it myself. But, mm. but I think what's important and is, is again, this, the, the text, the content, how they handle or don't the pressures that are assaulting them reveals a lot about what you think of the world and God. Yeah. You know, because for me, like there's a line I wrote down that scene you're referring to with Caleb and the father in the forest where he's getting Caleb to recite all these whatevers. Yeah. And Caleb says, my corrupt nature is empty of grace. Hmm. And I thought, good Lord, you guys, that's it right there. You're, you're, and again, like it is not meant for us in the span of 45 minutes, 50 minutes talking about a movie that is the witch to 
to be able to completely unpack some of the theology here, but it, there is treasures to be discussed and dissected from this right, text. Right. And I personally am more of a, you know, you, you, a, a sort of more traditional view, saint and sinner kind of thing. But I would even take it a step further. Like, I don't feel like we are born of death and find life. I feel like we, we began in the garden, which is a place of beauty and goodness and, and, and belonging. We, we do depart that garden for something less than, and life is about a, an, an attempt to return, not to that garden, but to bounty, to plenty, to goodness, faithfulness, and love and compassion. So what much of, I believe, Puritan theology, at least as it's in, expressed in this movie, is about is not we find our origin in the garden and are trying to return to a place of home as much as it is we are born in the wilderness of death and by some stroke of God's good fortune, we might enter into life. Yeah. That's what it feels like. Mm. And so when this child, I mean, it is, as a parent, it is eminently heartbreaking. Oh, yeah. It says, my corrupt nature is empty of grace. Mm. I want to hug that child and say, no, my son. Right. You, 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 by essence of Imago Dei, the image of God, you, you have something of this in you. Let's nurture that into fruition and flower and growth, you know? And so it's like, it's, they get it to me. People may watch this movie and think, oh God, the devil's assaulting the Christians. (laughs) You know, like that's a, as you've said, that's a certain interpretation and it's not a sort of an incorrect interpretation on a certain level. But I would say your pathology of your faith, a pathology I learned in a very definition way recently is just that, you know, it's, it's the abuse of a behavior, a mm. behavior that in your life is intended to be benign becomes monstrous oh, in wow. your life. Yeah. Like they have pathologized religion. Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? And so again, this is a question of if this interpretive at the end, is there simply a witch and the devil? Is it just the witch? So whatever. Whoever is preying on them, be it both and or just one, is manipulating this pathology. Yeah. I would not say this, the witch or devil is, is using their faithfulness against them. I don't think right. that is true. Right. I think they are, it is using their abuse, their pathology, their skewed interpretation of God and living with him against them to their yeah, death. I- I agree with that wholeheartedly. I have a couple of quick thoughts. Speaking to what you said earlier about, you know, my corrupt nature is is absent of grace. Um, if I, I can't remember if I'm saying that quote right or not. But one, you know, a couple of things that I wrote down. Uh, one thing is that when the father dies, his final words are corruption, thou art my father. You know, like he again talks about corruption. And yeah, it's heartbreaking when... He, you know, the night before everything sort of finally dissolves, um, the night before everything finally unravels, he is out there, you know, pouring the dirt that he kissed out of affection because he thought it was his hope. He's pouring that dirt into his mouth. And this line stands out to me so much. Just he's and, and huge kudos to the actor who delivers it so powerfully. I beg thee, my Christ, I have not damned my family. He just, you know, like just pleading, please, God, do not let it be true that I have that I have lost us, that I have basically undone us. And you talk about this pathology. You talk about, uh, you know, these sort of touch points of manipulation. One of the things that I thought, two things that I thought that I'll express very quickly. 
there's something uh, of an undercurrent of the theme of traps in the film. Like they're constantly laying traps for animals mm. in the woods. And uh, I had mentioned on the Real World Theology podcast that I kind of see the witch as kind of trapping them. I view the whole thing as as like sure. like when they encamped on in that specific place, they had no clue at that moment that they were literally at the edge of the spider's web. And that it was just yeah. a matter of time before they get stuck in it. And then the spider comes, wraps them up, quite literally consumes them. Uh, well, in the case of Samuel, quite literally consumes them. And then in this, in this other case, uh, you know, just unravels them and undoes them. So there's this, there's this theme of traps. And one thing that it made me think about is, I don't think we've ever said this, uh, explicitly on the show, but there's a profound difference between substantial faith and deeply entrenched superstition. There's a profound difference between those two. And I feel like a lot of times people will express what they feel is devotion or what they consider to be devotion. And I'll listen to it and I'll hear it. And immediately something will flag in my mind where I'm like, that is superstition. That's something that you are operating in. I got to make sure I don't walk under the ladder. I don't break the mirror or I'll get seven years of bad luck. And they'll operate in their level of faith. Like I got to make sure I don't do this or this other thing will happen. Or if I, if I don't commit this sin, then this other thing uh, won't happen. And then they get frustrated. It sometimes happens. I'll tell you the most prominent place where it takes place is in the area of tithe. A lot of people will say like, oh, I have to tithe. So my finances are protected. And I'm not trying to derail us into a side conversation about that. I'm simply saying that it is possible to be just, just basically treat your faith as if it is something that you can control. Treat your faith as if it is something that you can manipulate. And I think that's the difference between substantial faith and superstition is faith surrenders and releases control. Superstition has to control. Like look at the character of William and he basically only does what what he can control. Like it says, uh, Thomason says when she finally like sort of goes off on him, Thomason says, thou canst do nothing save cut wood. You can't do anything except for chop wood. And it's only what he can control that he tries to do. And what does he try to do whenever he encounters anything that threatens his family or threatens his faith? He tries to overpower it with the strength of his intellect or mm-hmm. the force of his will. He tries to, to control it again. Jonas and Mercy, when they have their, uh, their moment where they sort of are bewitched and they pass out, what does he do? He yanks them up and starts shaking them, you know, tries to shake them, rattle them out of it. That's his only response to anything that goes wrong. He does not really reach out to the Lord in relationship. He doesn't reach out to the Lord from a substance of faith. He's depending on what he feels that he knows to be true, what he feels to be uh, something that he can control. That's all that he has to lean on. And I think there's some substantial things that the film has to say about the differences between faith and superstition, because superstition is something that you control and you manipulate. And what does the witch do? She preys on their superstitions. She preys on their... Uh, sort of, uh, sort of flaws and their doubt and their uncertainty. And she uses that to manipulate them to the point of unraveling. Does all that, does all that make sense? Y- yeah. I, I think it's fascinating that as, as we, this, this just came to me and it's really interesting that these two are two movies were so 
in close proximity to each other, but let me in. Right, right. It's interesting. You know, your your heart breaks for Thomason. Absolutely. And sort of akin to Owen and let me in. My God, the child is just looking for some compassion, some understanding, some love. Right, right. It's just this family. It's not like she has peers she can go play with. Oh, yeah. They have nobody. Right. You know, her 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 only peer is Caleb, and they seem to have a good friendship, except that now he's turning into a young man and is noticing more than he should, and that's making it weird for him. And that's a whole other interesting conversation about the sexuality and how much they talk about sending her away. Like, it is amazing. Again, I'm okay with the indictment this movie makes of this brand of faith because I don't find it to be, (laughs) this is going to sound strong, because I don't find it to be faithful. I find it to be rooted exclusively in fear. I agree. No, I completely agree. And I don't mean to be dismissive or indicting of the people that are occupying this movie. I mean to say that fear of everything is not faith in anything. Somebody tweet that. Goodness oh, gracious. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. But I mean, that's exactly what's operating here. They're, they're afraid of everything. Mm-hmm. They're afraid of getting everything wrong. They're afraid of their own daughter for being what? A normal freaking human right. woman. Right. They are afraid yeah. of her. And they're afraid of each other. They're afraid of God. And hear me, like, our, the name of our stinking pod- podcast is The Fear of God. But I feel like if you go back and listen to our pilot, we're pretty express about what we mean by that. It isn't you are to live in dread fear for your very soul at the, in the face of Yahweh himself. Right. It is to say there's a healthy reverence associated with proper relationship with God. Right. Not what these characters are displaying and living out. You know, like, bless her heart, that poor mother, before she's completely gone, she doesn't get to have her space for her grief because the longer she's in her grief over Samuel, the more it impedes the family's ability to come right, together. Right, exactly. Provoking the father to lie to her about the cup. Like, all of this, you talk about them being on the edge of the spider web, they are weaving their own. Yeah, yeah. Right inside yeah, that absolutely. house. And the witch just comes along once they're all entrapped in their own devices and uh, and finishes them off. You know, I, I don't know, it's fascinating to see that correlation between this Thomason in this movie and Owen in that movie, but based on things like human sexuality, based on things like inattentiveness by authority figures in their life. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't know. It's really powerful. Well, I, c- I couldn't agree more. And I think another element that doesn't directly link the two films, but perhaps links our conversations about them. One of the situations we talked a little bit when we discussed Let Me In, talking about how when we say don't give the devil a foothold, Part of that is our responsibility as a community of believers as well as it is as individual believers. Yep. So, and what have they done? They've been kicked out of the plantation, so they are utterly isolated. They are utterly cut off from any sense of community. And I want to say this, I deeply believe in the necessity of community for a variety of reasons. And I've said things like this before. I've said things like this on this, on this show before that when you, separate yourself from a community of faith, then what tends to happen is now you no longer have any challenge to your beliefs. You no longer have anything like they they believe a lot of things that are that are incorrect and that are even if they're not necessarily incorrect, that are not helpful towards whole and healthy living. And if they were in a community of believers, 
They might be around people who would challenge that and who might speak right. some grace into that, speak some hope, speak some wholeness into that, but they're on their own. So they're stuck in their own head. And then you get into situations like there's no encouragement for when they feel despair. There's no help for their trouble. There's, there's nothing for them because they are utterly alone. They're utterly isolated. There's a two passages of scripture that I thought about in terms of this isolation is the first one is Proverbs chapter 18 and verse one, which simply says, statement of fact, one who has isolated himself seeks his own desires and rejects all sound judgment. And that's something mm. that they've, that's a condition that they've found themselves in. The other one is uh, Ecclesiastes chapter four, verses nine through 10, where it says simply two people are better than one for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help, but someone who falls alone is in real trouble. And I thought when I, when I came across that passage, just that phrase, someone who falls alone is in real trouble. And I was like, that, that is the witch summed up. Like that's the, that's the narrative of this film is that when you are isolated and alone and cut off from a source of community and from a source of health and wholeness, cut off from the body, if you will, then all you have is your own resources your own understandings, your own sort of tools in your toolbox. And if you're somebody who probably is operating more out of superstition than out of faith, you're going to be easy fodder for any prey or predator that wants to come and manipulate that and any, any sort of dark force, any sort of life happening that comes. And it's, it's a house of cards. It's going to utterly fall apart as it does, yeah. as it does for these people. It utterly unravels. Well, and what's fascinating, what's fascinating to consider, um, as we, you know, kind of perhaps steer towards, uh, home, you know, visually topographically a strange word, but feel where I'm going here. We wouldn't associate this with what we're seeing on the screen in the movie, the witch with this family, but in a literal sense, they might as well be in a desert. Mm. Like this family has nothing. Yeah. They are starving. I, I think what I'm trying to illustrate here is it's one thing when you have a particular need, but all of your other needs are being met. You right. know what I mean? Like, that's life. Like, okay, well, okay, good. The bills are paid. Well, now I can give attention to this thing. Okay, well, um, the kids are fed. So now I can give attention to this need. Right, you know what I mean? Like, right. that's just, that's, that's how life goes. It's a whole other ball game when the bills aren't paid. Yep. The kids aren't yep. fed. No food is coming in. Uh, no money's coming right. in. Uh, we barely have a roof over our heads. We're all stuck in one room. The kid just died. Oh, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, oh. Entirely. These people were already struggling with their sanity. Like that is a recipe for, I mean, your, your illustration of house cards is perfect. Like they were primed for destruction. I mean, really, you know, and on top of all of that, you have a personal pathological, I, I, we might say religion, we might say philosophy view of the world that says all of this is some form of punishment already right. from, from God or all of this. I still have to do another thing to make sure I break this cycle and God loves me and is going to reward us. Right. Like, right. man, what a mess for these people. I don't know. I, I think that to your point, like you just have to have, you have to have someone healthy in your life somewhere. You do. Yeah. yeah you, <laughs> you know, do. like, like and you have to have that and you also have this, have to have, and this is what they lacked as well. The self-awareness to know you are drowning. Yeah. Like, yeah. because what they viewed as God's maybe torture or punishment or rebuke was just drowning. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't self-aware. It was pathological. It was narrow. It was, 
it was legalism. Right. Yeah, it really know, was. To kind of keep coming back to that. Yeah. It was them having bought into the lie that Caleb says, which is our corrupt nature is empty mm-hmm. of grace. Thus, when your child looks at you and says, what happened to that three-month-old who was taken mm-hmm. from us? And you can say, I don't know. You are in deep trouble. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, because we can split hairs all day long about age of accountability and yada, yada, yada. But when you're in that moment and as a faithful believer might be able to say, I don't know what happened to that person's soul or spirit or what have you, like you got some yeah. problems. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, uh, and I'll say too, possibly as a, as a final note from, from myself and good Lord, uh, listeners may, uh, hear that, you know, we're kind of bouncing all over the place and they may feel when we, when we, wrap up that like, oh, wow, they only barely touched the surface. Well, that's the kind of film this is because this is, like I said, we could do a a scene by scene breakdown of this and still not tap into everything. But one of the things I think sort of bouncing off of what you said, you know, a presumption is usually made in life and particularly in movies that if a character expresses a, a faith that seems to be devout and they're not immediately written off as crazy, then the presumption is made that things are going to go well for them. You know, that, sure. that I'll, I'll say it this way, that all that is required is sort of getting right with God, what we would call like, you know, getting right with God and then everything is going to be okay. But what we know or what I believe is that there are so many other considerations, which are also of the essence, considerations of your emotional well-being, of your physical well-being, of your mental well-being, of your relational well-being. Like, you know, William may be a really great theologian, but he is a terrible husband and father. He has got an awful and, and that's not that's not to say that he doesn't love his family. He clearly he clearly sure, deeply loves sure. his family. But he doesn't know how to be that for them. He doesn't know how to do that. And maybe if uh you know if in a community of people he would he would get some help in that regard or get some some assistance there. But they're so stuck in feeling like their faith is all that matters that it's all they've got. And when it's not really as substantial as they believed it to be, you just have to give some considerations to these other areas of being whole. And, you know, some people might find that a little scandalous or may find it surprising that a devout Christian is saying getting right with God is not all there is to it. But I think whole living involves being attentive to every element and aspect of who you are as a person and making sure that you're taking care of what needs to be taken care of in that regard, which they clearly don't. And when they don't, they are subject to the witch in the woods, as it were. Yep. Well, uh, we haven't, we haven't even, gosh, we haven't even talked about that final scene. We haven't talked except briefly about Caleb's death scene, but th- there's just so much to talk about in this, in this movie. I'm going to say, you know, we're going to go ahead and end it if that's okay with you. Hey, everyone. So uh, this is something that we haven't done yet on the show before. We are tagging in without the usual introduction and fanfare because basically when uh, Nathan and I, by the way, hi, Nathan. Good morning, Reed. <laughs> you know what? I, I'm already going to stop you because I like fanfare uh, just in general in life. And, you know, let's let's do the parade. So <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I'm, I'm here. <laughs> so what we the reason that we're giving you this little bonus episode is because when Nathan and I were discussing The Witch earlier this week, we really felt, I, I think I really felt, but Nathan agreed, um, after minor convincing that, uh, that the conversation really wasn't quite done about that film. As we'd said in the episode, you could really do a scene by scene commentary for the entire thing. 
But uh, we wanted to have a little bit of a bonus, a little bit of an added uh, mini episode, if you want to call it that. We're calling it a bonus episode, um, where we really do a deeper dive into the conversation about the ending of the movie The Witch. And so that's what this is. This is, you can consider it uh, an appendix to the earlier conversation. You can consider it its own separate thing, if you want to, where we just discuss this film's ending. But either way, that's what we're going to be concentrating on. We're not going to do the usual scary moments and likes, dislikes. We're just going to dive right into the themes and the structure and the substance of the ending of the film, The Witch. So for those of you who may not have seen the film and chose not to see the film, but you did listen to it. Why are you listening to this? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I mean, if you did listen to our last episode and, and you thought like, hey, I'm, I'm going to skip that movie, but I'm interested to hear what they have to say about it or what their perspective is. So in brief, the, the elements of what we're talking about today, I'm going to summarize in maybe two minutes what the ending of that film is. So um, I'm going to fast forward through all of the major plot beats of the film, except that when Caleb, the oldest son in their household, died, there were some situations involving whether or not he was witched. They were uncertain because he he vomited up an apple, an actual apple, which seemed supernatural. But uh, then towards the end, right before he passed away, he seemed to have an experience where he had seen Jesus and and, and seemed to express redemption. Well, then the paranoia increases, and that evening... Uh, William, the father, repents and begs God to show him that he hasn't, that his family's not doomed. When they wake up the next morning, uh, this is what we discussed on the last episode, that the two twins, Jonas and Mercy, are, are disappeared, nowhere to be seen. And then also all of their animals are slaughtered, uh, with the exception of, with the specific deliberate exception of Black Philip, their main black goat. Thomason is still alive. She's bewildered, but she's still alive. William wakes up walks out and is almost immediately killed by Black Philip. Black Philip gores him with one of his horns and uh, he's almost immediately killed. Following that, the mom, uh, I believe her name is Kate. Yes. So yes. the mom immediately following that begins to go crazy on Thomason and calls her a witch, begins to beat her. And Thomason simply in self-defense kills the mother, which is horrific in its own right. But the part that we specifically wanted to talk about is that immediately following that whole instance where Thomason kills her mother, she goes into the barn, she goes to sleep, and then we're we're paused and we we skipped ahead to that evening. And that evening she goes back into the barn, she has a conversation with the goat where she tries to conjure the goat to speak to her and the goat literally transforms into the devil. Now, there's no special effects or anything. It happens off camera, but the goat literally transforms into the devil. Like Philip, I conjure thee to speak to me. Dost thou understand my English tongue? Answer me. What dost thou want? What canst thou give? Wouldst thou like the taste of 
the world. And basically makes Thomason sign his book. She wanders out naked into the woods following this goat and stumbles upon an entire coven of witches who then begin to float up in the air. Uh, they're dancing around a fire and chanting. They begin to float up into the air and then uh, Thomason herself begins to float up into the air laughing maniacally. That is, you know, cut to black. <laughs> that, is, uh, <laughs> that is the uh, summer feel-good ending of, uh, of The Witch. I want to start, uh, especially because I've been talking for a few minutes, by bouncing to Nathan, what was your initial sort of reaction to this ending in general? Um, at the, the first time I've seen it again, as discussed on the, the primary episode, I've seen it twice now. Uh, the first time it, uh, I mean, just to be frank, it scared the hell out of me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I will say before we, the, the, the thematic stuff gets addressed directly. I think that that final scene in the barn stable, whatever it is, is expertly rendered on screen. Mm. I mean, it is, I remember the first time I saw it when she, verbally addresses black Philip in there and, and entreats him to speak to her in my head. I thought there is no chance we're about to watch a goat talk. Like it's, this is not that movie. You know what <laughs> right, I mean? Like, right. like we're not about to cut to the goat CGI talking to Tom. Like it's just, I, I didn't know what was going to happen, but I knew we weren't going to get that. So right. I didn't know what was going to happen. Well, then she turns to leave and you hear that malevolent, almost whisper. It's like a, it's like he uh, went to the Jack Bauer school of acting, you know, like, uh, Thomason, welcome back, you know, whatever. So she, she stays and still I'm thinking there's no way we're about to see a, a talking goat. And then that Pirates of the Caribbean extra walks in behind her, <laughs> which I say in a jokey manner, but at the same time, it, the way it's rendered on screen, there's nothing funny about it. I mean, it is terrifying. Right. And I don't know. I just, I just think just visually it is captivating. In as much as this whole thing is, is scary as hell. As far as, you know, you and I, I, I mentioned this in, in part A, you know, you had, you had alluded to the possibility of her having fallen asleep when she goes back into the house or rather that, I mean, clearly she falls asleep, but that everything post that scene is, is sort of a dream state. Right. And, and right. I think my spirit wants that to be true. I think the more I've read, I can't get away from the likelihood that Jonas and Mercy are the kindling on the fire Ugh. or the kindling. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Um, you know, uh, thinking that that is probably the case, it, it stands to reason everything post her waking up is literally happening, you know, spiritually, but, but is physically happening in time and space right. as opposed right. to a dream right. state, which to be frank does unnerve me a good bit. I mean, it is, it is, on its own and unnerving movie, but I do think, and, and you may be heading this direction. I don't know, but what does give me food for thought and, and things to consider are, I think as seriously as we are meant to take that finale and it is terrifying. I do think we're as equally seriously meant to take Caleb's death. I think yeah. those are meant to be kind of counterpoints to each yeah, other. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and, and, and so, and so in a sense, while that isn't a hopeful interpretation, I don't feel like the movie is trying to say this is the course of action you should take when whatever. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like I think they're trying to give as much as they can while still telling a scary story, trying to give equal weight to what is real 
in these people's worlds. Does that make sense at all? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I definitely agree with you that I believe, and I know for me, this was my interpretation of it, that that Caleb's and Thomason's final moments that we see for them, you know, Caleb's definite death and Thomason's sort of resignation to this coven of witches uh, are meant to be counterpoints. I couldn't agree more. I, I saw them as such. I found it interesting that in both instances, the characters seem kind of relieved of their burdens, kind of uh, lighter. Sure. And, you know, in the case of Thomason, almost literally lighter because she begins to float. But I do not see their ends as having come to the same place of peace or resolution. Sure. One of the sure. things that I found interesting about this film, and I believe I mentioned this in in our proper episode and never called back to it, was the uh, the... The fact that the Satanic Temple endorsed this film. And I found that puzzling. At first, I had found, you know, before I had seen the film, I found that troubling. And it caused me to have some caution as to whether or not I even wanted to see the film. But then after having seen the film, I found it puzzling. I think from what I've read that the endorsement was largely because of sort of the, the liberation of the shackles of religious oppression against women. And uh, there's certainly a large degree of exploration of that in the narrative of the film. But why I found it puzzling, and I, I've said I said this on the more than one lesson episode. I can't remember if I said it on the real world theology episode, but it was puzzling to me because Thomason is really not free at the end. She is. It, you could have a reading of this film where, like, hey, she was under the thumb of this puritanical religious thought, and now she's been released from that. But how? By signing her name and pledging her allegiance to the devil, who is in this film yet another man? It's, or is it, he a goat? Or is he a goat? <laughs> is he a goat man? Ugh, that's... But, like... <laughs> that makes me think of... I know you don't even care or want to have this. There was a Saturday Night Live character... I. Jim Brewer, do you remember? This oh, guy? oh, and, yes. I mean, yeah. to be frank, I actually dislike him <laughs> on a deep level, but he had this stupid, idiotic Goatman character. And see, now we're to completely rewriting the end of the witch to include Jim Brewer as the Goatman. <laughs> be Jim Brewer. Anyway, oh man, anyway. that's funny. Well, I, I mean, like that was something that I, you know, sort of scratched my head a little bit when I was trying to figure out and understand exactly why they would so champion this film. Um, is it, and I'll, I'll say this, this is one of the main things that I wanted to sort of address in that ending. I think we, uh, I, I keep going back to when we talked about 10 Cloverfield Lane and what you identified as the idolatry of safety. I would use the witch to identify, to identify what I would call the idolatry of freedom that we basically position freedom in our own minds and our own hearts as the capacity to do what we want when we want to and to have no restrictions or rules or boundaries upon our behavior or, or upon whatever we should choose to do at any given moment. And one of the things that I was thinking of is, you know, part of his enticement. I make jokes anytime I'm talking about this film about, you know, nasty goat butter. Because he just, you know, says to Thomas and Black Phillip says to Thomas and, you know, do you like the taste of butter? And he asks her, do you want to live deliciously? And part of what it made me feel and think about is he's basically enticing her with the, the illusion of freedom 
but really she will forever be a slave to different things, to different desires. Uh, I mean, look at the, look at the fact that the witches evidently, either in ritualistic fashion or out of necessity, have to steal children, have to steal babies for whatever purpose that, that served. And it made me stop and recognize, and this is part of why I wanted so badly to sort of identify this and have a brief conversation about it, is it made me identify how we ourselves, whether we're looking at it on a personal level or looking at it on a, on a, a national level, looking at it on a familial level, we have a tendency to, to just really need freedom above anything else. Like I just need, I just need to do what I want to do and I, and I need to, uh, not be beholden to anybody else, not be, uh, accountable to anybody else. I just want to have my needs, my desires be the utmost fulfillment in my life. And I think that it is important to be whole. I think it is important to have needs addressed. And I think that what's in our hearts and minds need to be given their proper place. But I think the pendulum can swing too far to where suddenly we are now, uh, quite literally slaves to our own desires or slaves to our own, to our own wishes. And that's, in my understanding, is not freedom. Well, and I think in the spirit of the Caleb and Thomason's fates being counterpoints to each other, I think right down the middle, you find the family's version of Christianity. I right. Mean, like, I, I think any, I think the movie intends this. I think any sober reading of their version of faith is to recognize it as a broken one. Yeah. You know, if, if, uh, broken on the far end, misguided on the softer end. And I think it's fascinating. You know, you make a point of, uh, slavery or, or bondage to one thing, you know, you know, forsaking bondage to one thing in favor of another. And, you know, we address this. It might have been on the witch. It might have been on let me in. Like you're, you're gonna serve something, you know? Yeah. And it is interesting. This is me overlaying interpretation onto the movie as opposed to what I think the movie might actually be saying, but. You know, think about it from a, from a counterpoint perspective. If, if you are into this sort of duality kind of view, Caleb, I think, I think there's, I think an honest reading of Caleb's experience in his death. Now he does die. And so we can't ignore that fact, but is encountering what we would quote unquote term true Jesus. Like, mm-hmm. like there is something true and real and beautiful happening to him. You know, he is a child who has been. Uh, abused in the worst way and is, is experiencing freedom from that experience. And, and unfortunately from this terrible life he was bound up in. Right. Whereas if the ending of the movie is literal, she, she as well is experiencing a literal encounter with the opposite end of that spectrum. Well, you know, you made the point a minute ago of, of <clears throat> what is Thomason's future? Well, an encounter with again, true Jesus, if you will, that doesn't result in death or isn't the result of a death. Right, right. Um, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is your guiding light. That is your principle. You know, loving your neighbor as yourself isn't, that's not too hard to not abuse. You know what I mean? Right. It's not too hard right. to, to twist that into a perverted way. Now, you know, ignoring all the ways we could nuance that, but you know, what does loving your neighbor as yourself look like? Okay. We'll go do that. Now, <laughs> juxtapose that with Black Phillip. And what is going to happen to Thomason? Well, she is going to probably live in an enchanted hovel in the forest and steal children and bathe in their entrails right, and right. torment families to their demise. 
You know what I mean? Right. Like, yeah, exactly. You, you've got a very clear kind of course of action that's going to take place on either end of this spectrum. Um, and I just think that's sort of fascinating to consider that I do think the movie is claiming that what these people, how these people view the world, how these people view them, their place in the world is a broken one. Right. And right. then it sets up these fascinating counterpoints that are worthy of, as we are doing now, discussion. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And, um, I think that, uh, you know, I, I didn't want to linger too long on this, just sort of as a, you know, this is intended to be sort of a bonus supplemental. So maybe already as brief as the conversation has been with an eye towards winding down, I think we both expressed our thoughts pretty eloquently. Cogently? Yes. Cogent. Cogently, eloquently, expertly, <laughs> fantastically, all, all, eruditely. All the adjectives were had. But uh, I, I did have one additional scripture verse that I wanted to bring in. And that's simply Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 10. I feel like we quote Proverbs a lot, and I feel like that's a good thing. But uh, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 10, it's the second half of that specific verse. And it made me recognize in this conversation of whether or not Thomason is really free and whether or not her ultimate position is a good one for her. You could look at it, particularly if you were of an anti-religious sentiment, you could look at that ending and say, well, now she, now she's broken free because, you know, Black Philip set her free. And I'm going to get to the scripture verse in a second. But I think in almost every conversation that I've had about this, I took note that the only time, uh, besides, you know, making Thomason sign his book that Black Philip directly interacts with any of the characters in a propulsive way to push the story forward is when he actually kills William. Uh, mm -hmm. when, when William wakes up after having repented, uh, who knows what William's next choices were going to be, maybe to take them back to the plantation, maybe now to be penitent, maybe to completely change the direction of his life. And when he wakes up and sees the slaughter on his own home, then Black Philip kills him. And I took note of that as significant and sizable. And then we get to this scripture verse because Black Philip basically, you know, allows Thomason to write her name in his book and then takes her out into the woods. She joins these witches. This is going to be the, the element of her life now. And what Proverbs chapter 12, verse 10 says is even the kindest acts of the wicked are cruel. Mm. And it made me realize that you could look in some ways as if Black Philip is doing her some degree of favor that he's like he's, he's setting her free, but I walked away from that ending going, no, as a matter of fact, she's in the worst state she could have possibly been in um, now. Mm -hmm. Like, she's lost. She's ultimately irrevocably lost now at this point. And it, it made me want to, you know, just sort of reflect for a few moments as we've done on elements of freedom, on elements of sometimes we can consider, oh, well, maybe as we talked about in the in the Let Me In discussion, oh, maybe this this alternative option because nothing else is meeting my needs. Maybe this alternative option is the way to go and recognizing that, no, that's actually, that actually may be a crueler thing. That actually may be a worse thing to have yourself be aligned with is to actually be ultimately irrevocably lost. So did you have anything more that you wanted to add on, on that specific element? Um, just resist goats. In all forms in the future. Resist the goats and they will flee. <laughs> flee. Yes, yes. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, uh, you know, we, we obviously this is a bonus supplemental episode, so we will uh, 
sort of skip the usual, uh, we skip the fanfare at the top, we'll skip all the usual social media cues and just simply say we hope you've enjoyed this little addendum to the conversation. Uh, you know how to reach out to us. There's a variety of ways. Let us hear your thoughts on this ending, uh, on this film uh, in general, and uh, we will be back. Next- and in true, fa- in true fashion, we have lived up to our motto read, which is, the fear of God may be the beginning of wisdom, but it is not the end of the conversation in any form. And so here we are. <laughs> there you go. Thank you for thank you for keeping the tradition alive. I appreciate it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, thank you guys very much for listening. We hope you have uh, are having a good week, and we will see you next week with a proper full episode. You can check social media out to see what we're talking about next. And uh, Nathan, thanks for having this little bonus conversation with me. Sure thing. See you guys next week. Fear of God is the only the beginning of wisdom. It is not the end of the conversation. And when it comes to this film, there is such a profound amount of things to talk about. Listeners, if you have thoughts on this film, things that we didn't touch on or that we didn't bring up that you'd like to, to mention or discuss, you can reach out to us in a variety of ways. You can uh, reach out to us on Twitter. It's probably the easiest way. Nathan, what's our Twitter handle? At the fear of God. You can also like us on Facebook. There's a link to that through Twitter. You can post there to us. You can uh, follow me on Twitter at Reed Lackey. Nathan, where can they find you on Twitter besides the fear of God? At the Nathan Rouse. You can also email us fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. It's all one word, fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. Um, you can also uh, go to morethanonelesson.com, not only to find an additional conversation about the witch, but to comment on this post. Leave us a review on iTunes. That would be greatly appreciated. But there's so much to discuss with this film, and I feel like we haven't even really scratched the surface. We've kind of saw the surface in the distance and said, there's a surface. <laughs> but um, but, uh, but sincerely, uh, reach out to us with your thoughts on this uh, episode and on this movie. Um, we thank you very, very much for listening. And Nathan, thank you so much for watching this film again and for having this conversation with me. I appreciate it. Sure thing, as always. All right, listeners, we will see you next week. Thanks so much again, and uh, we'll talk to you then.